like, and the shout that comes from the Lord. Because <clears throat> it's going to be sufficient to cut through everything uh, to get to get to Him. My voice was doing a lot better till I stepped up here. I don't know what was <clears throat> what is going on. Anyway, what we're looking at and what we have been looking at for quite a while now is um, the last days. We started with Olivet Discourse, and then we took a look at 2 Timothy 3, Characteristics of the Last Days. And then now we're looking at 2 Peter, which is going to give us the, the how-tos. <coughs> Excuse me. Before it picks up again in chapter 2 and 3 with more prophecy. So these are very important passages because it is we, we have the layout of prophecy. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but it's all coming together. It's amazing uh, to just sit back and watch and have a calm and a peace. Because if you don't know what the Lord's up to and what he's permitting to come about, then it's easy to get really upset with uh, the world and everything else. But it's all coming together just like he said it was. I saw a, a deal the other day that said uh, worldwide stagflation. Expect that. Well, Germany went through a period of inflation that you learn in economics class that uh, literally it took a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Now, that's real close to what the Antichrist is going to do when he puts in rationing and then one of the horsemen of the apocalypse and it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. Basically, a couple of loaves of bread for a day's wages. That's, what, that's what's forecast for the tribulation. Now, I don't believe we're going to be here and I'm happy to miss that and look at it from above. But <clears throat> still, it's all coming together. Uh, everything is, is uh, being laid out and all it takes is the right leader the wrong leader, the right leader, the Antichrist leader, to come on the scene and put it all together, and then we have a we have the real war. But um, the right people are mad at each other. The right people don't trust each other. I mean, on down the line. And so the question is, how do we live now? What do we do about it? What do we do as Christians <clears throat> in the middle of of one of the most exciting times in all of history? Really, when all of prophecy is converging, it's coming together, and we're getting to watch part of it. So how then do we live? Do we go into panic mode, or do we go into uh, ex expansion mode? We're going to tell other people about the kingdom. Some people say, well, what can we do to get the rapture here faster? And the best answer I've heard to that <clears throat> is tell, give people a gospel. Because... Whenever the right number of believers fill up the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and that body and bride is complete, we're out of here. So it looks like it might be getting pretty close. We've sure got a lot of people to tell. They don't know anything about this man named Jesus. So how do we live and how do we function in a time such as these? No matter the culture that we are in, we find ourselves when we find ourselves how do we function? And that's what we're looking at right here in the early part of Second Peter. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer to get ourselves ready. It, of course, starts with being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once that happens, we're to, we're to be disciples. Disciples mean students. That means learners. We are to learn in order to do. That's what we need to, need to become. And to do that, we realize we're still sinners. 
saved by grace through faith, but there are times we need, we've committed sins because believers still sin, and we need to confess those sins, not to any other human being necessarily, but to the Lord himself because we are priests to God, and he's invited us to come into the throne room. So we take a few moments always for just silent prayer to prepare ourselves to shove out the fact that OSU got beat again last night and all the other things that go along with such uh, trivia uh, and to decide we're going to focus on this piece of food that the Lord has provided. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, thank you for this day, your love and grace and mercy and all your blessings and all your tests. Father, we thank you for the time in which we live. And Father, we know it is, it is uh, difficult times. It's in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation, but you told us to get ready for it because it was going to happen. But what's so wonderful is you also told us how then shall we live. And Father, as we look at these, these verses this morning, I pray that you'll nourish our souls with them so we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> now, as you might remember, earlier in Second Peter chapter 1, he said we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. So many times people spend their life looking for these things, and then he says everything we need for life and godliness. Now, that's to live a, the true life. We look at life based on worldly standards. Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. Do I have <coughs> all of those things that I need? And you're never going to have enough of those. They're insatiable. But what you already have is what God has provided because you're already famous. You're a child of God. And your, your name is written down in heaven. You have uh, a daddy who has the cattle on a thousand hills. I know sometimes you'd like for him to share a few of those. Uh, but And then power. Uh, the Holy Spirit's inside of each and every believer. Now, that's an incredible power we don't even think about. Some people think you can control him because he's on the inside of you. That's not the way it works. We submit to him and let him work things out. And then, pleasure. Uh, is, is the world in a pleasure-seeking mode? I can tell you, no matter who it is, where they are, everybody just wants this R&R, this, this rest and relaxation. And Peter said we got everything we need for life and godliness. And then he, he drew a target for us. And this target is, is pretty simple. He says, and you're supplying all diligence. Now, that is for us to do. What did God give us? Everything we need for life and godliness. So what do we do with it? <clears throat> you need to add something. Each of us are called to add something, and it says diligence. And this word diligence goes with all the other nine things that are put inside of this circle because he, he puts together a series of spheres. It uses a dative case in the Greek, and it's a dative of sphere. So inside the sphere of this, provide this, and inside the sphere of this, provide this, and he keeps drawing a smaller circle to hit the target. Now, anyone's ever shot at a target knows that that you want to hit the 10 ring. You really want to hit it right dead center. That's what you want to do with it. And so this is saying, how do you get there? How do you get there? 
Diligence means you give it an honest effort. You have a real zeal to do it. You're motivated to do it. And you try to do it as rapidly as possible. So <clears throat> that's diligence. You supply the diligence. And then it says, in the sphere of, and then it says, um, supply faith. Okay? So it says, in the sphere of diligence, having added all diligence, in your faith, abundantly supply the virtue. So here is diligence. The next circle is faith. Okay, that goes to this inner ring. The next one is virtue. And we've seen that. That's, a, that's quite frequently lost in our society. Virtue has been redefined. And the old devil's done, a, done quite a job at redefining virtue. As virtue has come to mean anything I can get away with. Virtue has come to mean a whole lot of the wrong stuff. And in, in your faith, though, supply virtue. So what, what is this that you supply? It's something that everybody, I believe, knows already. Because faith is not about what I can believe. It's what about who or what I believe. It's always about the object. So in your faith, supply virtue. Now, we went through the verses. Every human being knows there's a right and wrong. God has written it on their hearts. It's written, It's put in throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 2 talks about such things. He says even the Gentiles who don't have the law know the law. It's written on their hearts. So every human being made in the image of God knows there's such a thing as right and wrong. And you really don't have to convince them they violated it. It's not hard to convince people they're sinners if, if they just stop and think about it for a minute. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you just go to the Bible, you get some shortcuts in life. But it's, it, these are things that are obvious to everybody. Uh, even Hindus, who won't even use the word sin, knows there's good karma and bad karma. So just because you take the word sin out of your vocabulary, then doesn't mean that you don't know you're, uh, you're, you're a sinner. Because they're right and wrong and bad karma is sin. Because you're going to have to bear the, bear the burdens of the bad karma before you can get the good karma to overcome it. That's in Hinduism. So supply virtue. The things that you know to be right and wrong. And then it says in your virtue, supply knowledge. Now knowledge, it's the word gnosis that it's used here. It's just basic knowledge. But we know that there is a knowledge that's of the world and a knowledge that is of God. And so that means get God's knowledge. Study to show yourself approved unto God as workmen that don't need to be ashamed. Realize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the man of God can be mature and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So it says, then get the knowledge. So take your diligence... And say, I want to learn what God has to say to me. And I'm going to put my faith in this thing called the Bible. Now, if you do some research, you'll find out that the, the Bible in the original languages is, uh, uh, is, is as accurate as you can get it. It's amazing how accurate that this, this in the original languages the scriptures are. They have been studied. They've been dissected. They've been tried to tear apart and everything. And when you find out there's over 40,000 manuscripts and they're in 95% agreement with one another, that's a real high level of confidence that you can put into it. And don't have to worry. The other 5%, only 1% of that 
has any theological significance to it. Um, so supply knowledge. So you start digging in and find out what does God want me to know? How does he want me to act? How does he want me to think? You just ask those questions and then with diligence you pursue it. Diligence wraps all these things up. See? So apply this honest effort to all of these, of these elements. And then in verse 6 it says, and in the knowledge. Now you may have a English translation that you're looking at and that's why this CT on this uh, handout a corrected or literal translation this is right out of the Greek your is not in there in the uh, Greek language so it says in the knowledge and in the knowledge the self control now self control is the word egakratia it's used only four times and the word literally means having an inside strength. Now, we know that, that we have um, uh, we have self-control usually in things we don't like. But sometimes there are things that we like that we just have to, uh, but we don't need, and we need to exercise self-control. Now, where, where does that come from, and what is that about? Now, we're going to see these other ones as we move on through. Perseverance. If we get there that this morning, we're going to enter into the need for perseverance. Notice how these circles are getting smaller. Because if you ever hit the middle circle, you got the other ones. You've at least hit it for that moment in time. And in the perseverance, then, the godliness. Godliness is uh, to give good reverence to. Used to be as the word group that's used there. means to, to be, It doesn't mean you become your own god. What it means is you become an imitator of the God. Very big difference. Ephesians 5.1 says be an imitator of God. And in your godliness, then you supply brotherly love. That means you learn to love one another. And love one another as yourself. And in the brotherly love, you supply the love. And that's what we're after. That's literally what it says in the Greek. The love. And this is the, the main target. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbors, yourself, the two greatest commandments. These are the goals that we should have in this life. The legitimate ones. That's what we want to do. What a, what a great thing to put on a tombstone. It would be uh, he, he loved the Lord or she loved the Lord with all of her heart. That would be a message to a legacy to pass on to other generations. If they could honestly write that <laughs> on your tombstone. And so that's the target. That's what we are looking at. That's what our life should be about. In the middle of a crooked and perverted generation, be a light in the world. And how do you do that? You love the one who is light. And then you spread this light to other people. See, so work it backwards. How do you do that? By being godly. Oh, you know what? You're going to be godly and somebody's not going to like you. Because you're a godly person. That's perseverance, isn't it? And then perseverance, you work it backwards like that. And it's self-control. Well, you need self-control to continue to persevere. And you know, you need to know how to do it. So that takes knowledge to do that. And then your virtue should be stronger. You know, a Christian should not be for sale for any amount of money. We're talking <clears throat> last night at the house about 
some football coaches that just decided to jump ship because they were offered twice as much money to do it. And you look at it from a worldly perspective and go, yeah, that's what should have happened. That's the way it would do. That's the way the world does things. But what happened to loyalty? I, 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 you know, I don't hate them. But football coaches that stand up and say, I love where I am. I'm not going anywhere. This is my dream job, da-da-da-da-da. And then the day after the season's over, announce they're going somewhere else, which is twice the money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's to me, is a sellout. Don't make the statement if you're not going to live up to it. So, <clears throat> virtue and then faith. Our faith grows. Why, why does it? Why do the exhortations keep abounding in faith, keep growing in faith? That's because we have more and more trust in the object of our faith that we know more and more about. And then diligence. You you got to admit sometimes when we get a little bit older. And I know all y'all are still young in here, but we start running out, running out of steam. We start getting a little bit um, tired, if you will. And um, some of you haven't heard this joke, but it's kind of like the the uh, lady went to her husband one Sunday morning, and how many how many of you heard it? I know two or three of you have heard this. Anyway, went to her husband, said, "Come on, you need to get up. It's time to go to bed." Or time to go to church. And he says, nah, I don't want to go to church. <clears throat> and she says, honey, you need to get up. It's time to get ready and go to church. I don't want to go to church. Well, why don't you want to go to church? Because I don't like them and they don't like me. I don't want to go to church. And she said, come on, honey. You need to get up and get ready to go to church. And he says, give me one good reason to get up. And go to church. And she said, you're the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) So, that old joke still has some value. But sometimes, everybody gets tired. And that's where the devil wants us. Fatigue makes cowards of us all, is what it said. Now, verse 6, where we left off. In the knowledge, the self-control, egkratia. Now, it's only used four times, but everywhere it's used, it's important. Aristotle said, I count him braver that overcomes his desires than he who conquers his enemies. Now, really, I don't think he realized on the inside is an enemy, too. It's called the sin nature. It is the flesh that wants to do its own thing, which is, in, which is contrary to God. Uh, another person made the comment, the same people who deny others everything are famous for refusing themselves nothing. And you find that in authoritarian societies. They, they will deny everybody else things, but not themselves. They have this uh, golden spoon in their mouth or whatever. So the first point, a summary, in the sphere of the faith, remember the target, the faith, the virtue, the knowledge, we should add the self-control and do that with all diligence because diligence applies to all of it, adding all diligence. Now, the challenge to self-control can literally strike fear in the hearts of people. It can strike fear in the hearts of people because 
we kind of get used to a lack of self-control and we figure out how to get away with it and get around doing what we know we need to do. Acts chapter 24, verse 24 to 27. It's an interesting passage in Acts. And it says, Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. And they sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness. Now, Paul... It's the one that taught us clearly, you receive your righteousness by grace through faith at the moment of faith in Christ. That's where you receive it. So he he is explaining to this political leader. Because the Lord said, Paul, I'm going to put you in front of kings and governors. And here he is, the prophecy to Paul being fulfilled. And he's talking to him. And he was discussing righteousness. Now, Uh, He was discussing righteousness. And the next thing is self-control. So he's talking to Felix about the importance of self-control. But he's talking about righteousness you get at the moment of salvation. He's talking about self-control that deals with after salvation in the Christian life. And the judgment to come. See those three things? Righteousness is phase one, moment of faith. Self-control is phase two, battling the power of sin that is within each and every one of us. And the judgment to come is about phase three. We'll all stand in front of the judgment of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. So what has Paul done in front of this political leader in one sentence that is described? And Felix became frightened, and he said, Go away for the present, (laughs) and when I come... Find time, I will summon you. So he's talking to Felix about righteousness, which Felix didn't have, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. And that's Paul giving the gospel to one of these leaders. And it says, at the same time, too, Felix was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. He was hoping Paul would bribe his way out of jail. Is what he was looking for. You know, he was a false judge, a lying judge under the Mosaic law. He would have been he would have been uh, stoned or killed under the Mosaic law. He says, but after two years had passed, you see anything maybe about perseverance? Have you ever done something right? And you think, Lord, I did it right. Okay, go ahead and reward me now. And he says, no, there's other things you need to learn. Called perseverance. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. So here's a man wrongly imprisoned for his faith. And does he shut up? No. Does he try to buy his way out? No. He says, God's got me here for a reason. And he takes that, and every opportunity that he gets, he uses it. And as we know, he evangelized a whole lot of the guards that were assigned to watch him. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So reliance on the Holy Spirit is necessary to this to fully become a part of your life. Do Self-control is something that we're taught about from preschool. You know, parents start telling us, Okay, you need to stay away from that cookie jar. 
and then we learn about consequences, hopefully. But we're taught about self-control and how you need to control your emotions, control your actions. We're taught about this early on. <clears throat> but oftentimes, we just learn how to cope and get around things instead of really being involved in this self-control. But it's a self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at it in a different light. So reliance on the Holy Spirit is necessary for this to fully become a part of your life. You as a believer have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're having trouble controlling yourself in an area you know you need to control yourself? Hmm. Where do you go? We have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. And you say, Lord, I need help. I can't handle this in the energy of my flesh. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So you can handle whatever comes your way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is what Paul said. So the importance of self-control has to be learned. It's not something that is automatic. Sometimes people go out and uh, they, they get a lot of people saved, but they don't teach them about the Christian life and battling the power of sin that comes after that. And then they demand certain things out of them, and the people fail, and they don't have anybody gracious enough to help pick them up. We, uh, I did a quick conference yesterday on bearing one another's burdens. And the importance of we as Christians are to help those who are caught in a trespass. That's what we do, all of us. And so we're to be counselors. So it's a good idea to have some kind of concept of how to go about counseling uh, other people. Now, self-control is a qualification of an overseer. So if you get ready to hire a pastor, overseer, elder, and <clears throat> I know the church has made distinctions between pastor, overseer, and elder, and there is some distinctions, but they basically have the same function. You can find it in Acts 20, 28. You can find it in multiple passages where it talks about an overseer, which was primarily a Gentile term. Okay, The Gentiles knew people as overseers. Episkopos is what, what it looks at. Skopos is a word that means to look at the details on something. Epi means over because you have a position of authority over someone. Kind of like a boss at work. A boss at work, and he comes to inspect your work. Okay, that's an episkopos. Like it or not, they have the position. But what is their job? Their job is to pastor, to shepherd, to lead, to guide, to teach. That's what shepherds do. What is an elder? An elder is, is an old person. Now, some people is may be old and have no wisdom whatsoever. Okay, I'm sure we've all run into people like that. But when it comes to spiritual things, it means somebody that it is more spiritually mature. They've been at it a while. The, the 1 Timothy 3 says, not a novice, not brand new at the thing. Somebody that's got some experience and somebody that's got good experience. So this fruit of the Spirit should take us to self-control, and it can if we will rely on, on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It will come to fruition. Self-control is a qualification for an overseer. So an overseer, it's, say, it's another way to say the Holy Spirit, the, the overseer must be led by the Holy Spirit to have this self-control. Because Titus 1, verse 7 to 9, 
talks about that very same thing. One of the four places that the word ekritia is used for self-control. So the self-control must relate <clears throat> the self-control must relate to the internal power that is within us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what can we do? All things through Christ who strengthens us. It's not our own power that'll do it. So this internal power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now through the power, through the Holy Spirit is the power that raised Jesus the Son from the dead. So if we're looking for internal power to overcome various problems in this life, <clears throat> what does the Holy Spirit have to offer? Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit has the power to raise Jesus from the dead. He's got the power to, to help us overcome these little things of life that are not pleasing. Now, <clears throat> the power lets us fight in the battle of the angelic conflict. <clears throat> Some people think they're going to go out, they get involved in the occult. There's things where some of the occult uh, teachings that is that if you get in and you get in heavy enough, then what you can get are spirit guides. If you go into all kinds of, of uh, yoga and TEM and stuff like that, then you can get a spirit guide. And you can gain enough power, according to the occult, to control a spirit guide. Now, a spirit guide is a demon, purely and simply put. And some people get so involved in that that they, they uh, actually think that they can control these spirit guides to carry out their will. Now, that indicates a person that knows very little about what the scriptures have to say. When you study angels, you find out they're faster than we are. They are more powerful than we are. They are smarter than we are. They've been around a lot longer than we are, so they have a different kind of wisdom. Earthly, the wisdom that is from the earth is earthly, natural, and demonic. James chapter 3. So, Anytime somebody's foolish enough to want to get in deep enough into the occult to try and get their own spirit guide to control. And what do they want to, why do they want a spirit guide? Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. Why else would they want one? They want a spirit guide for one of those things to give them an edge on other people. You get in that deep, it's called demon possession. That's where people, that's how, part of how it starts. They start looking for it and then you find out and guess what? You can't control it. We know a lady one time got into uh, yoga. And, you know, it was clear your mind of all these things. <clears throat> then they gave her a mantra. She's supposed to say this, this word or phrase over and over and over again. Clear your mind, say this thing over and over and over again. And uh, 
<laughs> it's interesting. Here's this mantra that everybody's supposed to be given that's unique to you, and there's only 26 of them, and they're the name of Hindu gods. But anyway, and you get deeper and deeper in that, and she got deeper and deeper in that, and she finally got her mind pretty clear, and she heard a little voice that said, Hello. Hmm. And she was smart enough, scared enough, knew enough about the Bible. That was the last event she had in the in the yoga class. Because she got in there not just for relaxation and that. I know some people do it for muscle control and things like that. That's not what we're talking about. But the, the medic, meditation on certain things, saying words you don't know over and over again, you basically call on a demon trying to... Um, uh, call on them for for assistance and that's a mistake because we are not powerful enough to deal with an angel full bore head on we can't do it our bodies are not designed that way or built that way but Ephesians 6:12 finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength in this power this kratia of his might put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is an ongoing unseen battle that's going on all the time around us. And it's and occasionally we get a little glimpse of it, a glint, little piece of, piece of information that gives us a glimpse into it. But it's going on. And so how do you deal with what's going on around you that you can't see? We're looking at it. You have diligence. You have faith. You have virtue. You, you have knowledge. You continue to grow. And that's how you live a life pleasing to the Lord in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. And fight the conflict as you, as you should. As I was doing an angelic conflict a long time ago, I first studied it about 1981 or two. Did it again 1985, and I'm really deep into it, trying to figure out how this fits with this and this fits with this, and why it's this way and why it's not that way and all that. And I'm teaching this to the church, and one of the deacons, which is a church in Bartlesville, came up to me and said, "So what?" So what? How should we live? <laughs> and I thought, that's a very good question. In fact, I can tell you when that question came, 1986. So what? To know all this stuff, how do I live today? And that's in part what led. I was shown within the next two weeks, I was shown that little chart that we look at that has to do with goals. And our significance and our security and regaining paradise lost in, in a sense. And I was showing that little chart and I said, that's it. That's how we're supposed to live. In the middle of everything going on and swirling around us. We're supposed to love God with every part of our being and love our neighbors ourselves. And that's how you impact the angelic conflict. That's how you do it. Now the power can overcome the fear of death. One of Satan's more most formidable weapons. <clears throat> Hebrews 2:14 and 15 says, "Since the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, 
speaking of Christ becoming flesh, he says that through death, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, did, did Satan really have the power to kill somebody? Not when you study the rest of Scripture. He didn't. <clears throat> who had the power to uh, destroy both body and soul in hell? The Lord did, not Satan. So what kind of power did he have? The fear of death is the power that he had. People are scared to death as a rule. I found some lately have become so involved in atheism and don't know it. Secular humanism is the... Uh, Atheism sounds bad, so they say, I'm a secular humanist. Well, why don't you just say you're an atheist, because that's what you're saying. Okay? <clears throat> and I say, well, no, I'm not afraid of death. I run into people like that. They have so convinced themselves that once they close their eyes this, that last time, that uh, they go into non-existence. Not a good place to be. So they're not afraid of death. A Christian shouldn't be afraid of death. An unbeliever should be. Now, <clears throat> the power lets us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This power on the inside to have this self-control lets us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. From Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious strength, might, power. That's, that's the word. Why? For the attaining of all steadfastness. That's being even keel, patience. Seems like that's our toughest test, isn't it? Patience toward people, patience toward things. Joyously giving thanks to the Father, because James had already written, rejoice in your, in your testing. Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So, <clears throat> here we have... This, what we're called to do. This self-control lets a walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Did he have self-control in all things? It's a good question to ask. The answer is yes. If we want a model and want an example, that's who we look to. What about uh, John 17? Immediately comes to mind. He's praying the night before the cross. And he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, the real communion cup. What he was getting ready to face. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He didn't, in his humanity, nobody in their right mind would be looking forward to a crucifixion. Ever. And he said, but it's not about me. It is about you, Father. 
And then he made the decision. When he went to the cross, he said he laid down his life. That's what he did. He's told them already. He said, no man takes my life from me. He's God-man in the flesh. So if he said, no, we're not going through with this, he had the power to do that. That's He laid down his life willingly on the cross. Now, that is self-control. To be able to do that, having an idea in his humanity of what he's going to face. A serious serious, uh, idea. So it lets us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And self-control is required to win. And I got game here of life. Look like a good word to put in there. And then I, you know, I, I hate to put a word like that in sometimes because people say, well, this is not a game. Well, Paul seemed to think it was. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I love these sports analogies because, you know, Paul knew about the Isthmus games and all the, the, the games that were going on. The Greeks loved games, so they loved their, they loved their gladiators and everything else. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you can win. If you're in the middle of this battle, this arena, as we're viewed in Hebrews chapter 12, we're in the middle of the arena of life, and it is a battle going on. It is much like a football game. Okay? And out there on that field is where things happen. And then there's a whole lot of crazy spectators up in the stands. Only this time, there is a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It includes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and several other people. And it says, we have them watching us. And here we are. And he says, all right, I want you to run in a way to win. You're part of this game of life, so to speak. Running away to win. It doesn't mean that you beat every other believer across the finish line. It's an interesting race, isn't it? It's a marathon in one way. It's a sprint in another way. Because diligence means to have a speed with you. Only you want everybody to cross with you as a Christian. That's what it means to love one another. When it talks about eternal rewards, we're not in a battle with one another to see who can get the most crowns or who can get the biggest pile of gold, silver, or precious stones. We are in no battles with other believers. Okay, We are in a battle with Satan. And that's what, that's what it is about. He says they all run, but only one receives the prize. Now this is believer, unbeliever. Run in such a way that you can win. He says, and everyone who competes in the games exercises Self-control in all things. That's the fourth use of that word. Self-control. Very seldom do you see an athlete in these games that is so out of shape they shouldn't shouldn't be there. It's hard to get there. It's kind of a fluke if they do. They had a weightlifter one time, and that's kind of a different thing. They had a weightlifter one time that smoked and drank and, and ate, you know, did all things you weren't supposed to do, and he's the strongest man on the planet at that point in history. But that's not normal. Most of them train, and they train hard, and they work out, and they they control their diet. They control their exercise. They do that, and that is self-control. They practice and practice and practice. He says, self-control in all things. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath. You know, nobody's going to take a Super Bowl trophy with them to heaven. It's not going to go there or an NBA championship or a wrestler's belt. Nobody is going to take any of that stuff with them. But he says, look at all this self-control that's done to receive a, a perishable wreath. But how about us? We, an imperishable one. Because the, the beauty of that won't, uh, won't fade. I was at a Olympic gold medal winner's house one time, long time ago. And there was the gold medal laying out on, you know, on the uh, coffee table. And it was there all along, as you can tell. It had some Coke stains and coffee stains and stuff like that that had, that had gathered it. It had lost its luster. He still had it, but it lost its luster. These things that we have never lose their luster. So he says, we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way is not without aim. Can you imagine a, a marathon runner deciding they're going to take a side trip that's going to add distance to their to the to the marathon, 26.2 miles? And there's okay. I think I'll go sightseeing down this block while I'm running on this race. It's not going to work well. Some of them have taken shortcuts shortcuts <laughs> now to get out in front of the race, and that's not that's not the way we do it. But you got to know where you're going. I run in such a way, not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Like George Foreman is an old man out there in the ring. Whenever he was a young man, he punched himself out. And Ali rope-a-doped him. He let him wear himself out in about three punches. When After he realized that George was worn out, he knocked George out. Because he rope-a-doped him. But later on in the fight, when George came back... When he was out there in the ring, he was stalking his opponent. And he was landing over half his punches. He didn't punch himself out. He still had the strength. And he almost regained the crown again. And I think he knew this verse because George a Christian. I box and not beating the air. When I throw the punch, I want it to land. But I buffet my body, I make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself might be disqualified. Paul says, I can lose rewards that I could have had. But I need to have the self-control in all things in order to win this game of life. Now, <clears throat> and again, I've got to talking too much. i run out of time one more time. But we've got self-control and after self-control we've got perseverance now I know sometimes setting through a Bible class requires perseverance and uh, you know it's a good thing <laughs> I try not to make it as, as uh, difficult as possible but um, if it does get difficult from time to time we need perseverance we need perseverance to set down and study the Bible. Read it all the way through. Read it like a novel from time to time. And then go back and take a book. Take a paragraph out of that book. Because every translation we've got. Has got the paragraphs marked one way or another. Take a paragraph. You take it and you title it. You put a title to it. 
How can I title this, these few sentences that I find? You put a title to it. And do that all the way through the New Testament. Now, you can say, well, that's a lot of work. Yes, it is a lot of work. But title it. And after you get done titling all the paragraphs, go back and title all the verses. And add that to it. You know what will happen? You will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will see more and more what it means about context. Interpreting things in context. Because that's how you see the flow that the author wanted us to know. And that's what we're after. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and grace and mercy. Thank you for all your blessings and tests. Father, thank you for your word and the challenges that the Holy Spirit brings to us regularly. And Father, this uh, challenge of self-control, we know that that's difficult. There's always some things that are difficult for us. And Father, I pray that we would realize that we can uh, go to you with all things and through the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be a part of who we are. So Father, I pray that we would have this self-discipline to have this self-control that is not just for our own benefit, but, Father, to honor you. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.